Three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Kevin, BJ, and Ben, glad you're with us here on this Tuesday. So much to get to here on the show as we uh, have college football uh, certainly on the brain. A couple of interesting programs to look at, Miami and Florida State, who are just inexplicable uh, at this point. We'll do a little stock up, stock down uh, with some teams and players around college football. Also, take a look at the Falcons and Jags going into week three of the NFL weekend. Also here on the show, we'll look to chat with Andy Demetra, voice of the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, as uh, we will talk with him about uh, Georgia Tech's performance there up at, uh, at Clemson and how they uh, turned out, came up short. How did they channel that moving forward under Jeff Collins? Also efforting Philip Fuller, former Tennessee Vols head coach, player, AD, uh, and we are looking to have him on the show uh, potentially here in the first segment. So uh, a lot to get to here on the show, uh, Ben and BJ, but Florida, Tennessee this week, and this has been about as one side as you could possibly get. I think Tennessee has lost 15 of the last 16. Florida, if you want to flip it on, the, it's on its head the other way, has won 17 of the last 22. So a uh, big series there. I believe we have uh, found Coach Fulmer, uh, Philip Fulmer, uh, former head football coach there at the University of Tennessee, joins us here on 3 and Out. Coach, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, thank you, guys. Hey, we appreciate you coming right. on and, uh, and joining us. So, Tennessee-Florida week, what does that, uh, that mean to you? Obviously, this is a rivalry that goes back a, uh, a long time, but uh, what does it mean when the Vols are getting ready to line up against the Gators? Well, it's obviously the biggest game of the year thus far for both teams. Uh, maybe not... Uh, uh, I guess maybe last week for I mean for Florida Alabama was huge and and they they played great. Uh, we really haven't been tested yet uh, that much, but we'll sure find out a lot about ourselves I guess Saturday. Coach, when you think about this rivalry, so many big games, so many big moments from your career. What what stands out when you think about Tennessee Florida in the history of the series? Well, I, you know, I mean, there's been, I mean, we didn't play that much, you know, leading up to the, you know, to the 90s when we went to uh, divisional play, and then it became everything, you know. It was really it was unusual to have two teams as good as those in the same division in the same conference, you know. Those 90s teams were, were fantastic, both at Tennessee and, and at Florida, and, uh Great players, you know, great games, uh, you know, moments that uh, for both sides that are historical. Uh, uh, Coach Spurrier and I actually were talking, a few, I guess, a couple months ago about some of those games. It just um, was, you know, quite, quite, quite incredible to be a part of, to be honest with you. So. And Coach, I mean, Coach Hyper's in. I mean, you, he definitely want to try to get his offense going, was able to run the football uh, the first game of the year. You talk about the test they're going to have against Florida. What, do you, what are your early impressions of Coach Hyper? And, uh, you know, do you think, uh, you know, uh, what he's preaching to the kids has kind of resonated with him thus far? You know, I really, I really like Coach Hyper. He's, uh, he's, a, he's a fine football coach, and he's a you know, down-to-earth guy. I think he relates really well to the players and to the Tennessee people. Um, uh, he's, you know, kind of been put behind the eight ball a, a little bit, you know, to be honest with you, with, with the, all the situation that happened to us, you know, at the end of last year. And, uh, he, you know, he's making the most of it. The portal has helped, I think, as it probably is, has a lot of people, I guess, is, is to fill in some 
depth, but we're still down in our numbers. I, I'm, I'm really impressed with him. I think he'll do a great job. But, uh, you know, he's got, you know, when he gets into the SEC play, we're just, we can't make the mistakes that we've made in the first couple of ball games. And he knows that. And there's no reason to help a team beat you if you can help it. And his quarterback, uh, he's got that kind of a situation. I think he's, you know, closer to getting it resolved with between the, the two kids, uh, but they, you know, they're going to have to play really well. And I watched the uh, Alabama Florida game from from the beginning, and was just so impressed with what uh, you know the toughness and courage of Florida had to come back, and then you know to be right there to win the game. Uh, and uh, wow, it was just a tremendous effort. Philip Fulmer joining us here on Three and Out, and Coach, you talk about the expectations of coaching in the SEC, and I know Josh Heupel, as you said, came in kind of behind the eight ball. But speak to that, as I know you know well. What is, what is it like to try to ask for patience in the SEC while you're saying, "Look, I have a vision. We're building a program," and knowing week in and week out, you're playing uh, the best football uh, football teams pretty much you can find in college football on a week in and week out basis. Yeah, I mean, everybody. You look at Arkansas. You know, a couple of years ago, they were way down, way down the list, and what what their coach has done for them. That's just, you know, what same. We've got to do the same thing. We've got to build back, and don't you know? There's not a lot of patience, to be honest with you, with the with the fans. I think Danny White and is great, our athletic director, and he certainly knows and has lots of experience with Josh. So I think they'll be. They'll be patient and, and understanding, and, and uh, you know, it, it'll take a little while, but also a good signature win helps things, too. So he's got some opportunities for that starting this, this weekend if he could pull it off. Coach, that 1998 season, of course, so special for you guys. Take us back to Tennessee, Florida in 98, where you go into overtime, you get the win, and uh, obviously go on later in the season to win a national championship. Yeah, you know, that's one of those teams that just kept getting better during the course of the year. We'd lost, I think, 12 guys to the draft, three in the first round, and then the first pick was Peyton, you know, and everybody just, well, I think we are picked like third in the East, and, and, uh, and you know, that was all well and good, uh, but those kids didn't realize that. So they, we had a great win at Syracuse, and uh, and then the big-time big overtime win there in Knoxville at, at against Florida, and then it, we just got better and better as the season went on. We're healthy. We lost a really good quarter or a tailback, and, but those other other guys, uh, you know, really stepped up in a big way. So overcome overcame a lot of adversity, and, and it, it was. It was a special team. It probably, you know, just player-to-player talent wasn't necessarily our best team, but it was the uh, the, the team that won all of its games. So it's special, special to to me and to the Tennessee people, certainly. And coach, when you think about when you think about the ever changing world of college football or college athletics, you look at name and image likeness. You look at how crazy recruiting is. It's, it's far different from when you coached to, to, till now. Like, what do you think uh, the key to, the key to just uh, having staying power as a head coach now, especially <laughs> when winning is always going to be the bottom line. Yeah, well, that's still the case, right? You got to win, you know, and keep, you know, keep keep the fans happy and and all of that. The social media things have just made it tremendously tough. And then you put this name, image, and likeness in the portal together, and it's not, you know, we could we could argue all day about, you know, is is name, image, and likeness a good thing or not? It's it's the law now. I mean, it's 
Congress has passed it, or the, excuse me, the Supreme Court has, Court has passed it. Our CAA folks sat on their hands long enough that nothing happened on that side, and and it is what it is now. So I, I, I would not want to be a coach trying to manage a locker room and parents and the portal and all, all of that uh, that goes on. But at the end of the day, you still got to get on the field and play, and whoever plays hardest and the best will win the games. But it's a bit more like pro football, I guess, now. You know, your your team might not look the same year in and year out, depending on who you pick up in the portal or whatever. So you got that's just a management thing that's 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 new to us. But it's going to be a bigger problem than than people realize because of the locker room, you know, and and uh, handling different scenarios that comes up with one or two players on the team making a whole lot more than everybody else. Philip Fulmer joining us here on three nine. You mentioned the, the the transfer portal, and we've we've actually seen uh, teams sign nothing but transfer. I think there was a Texas State didn't sign a single high school kid uh, this past uh, recruiting cycle. How how do you think that transfer portal gets used and looked at long term around college football? Obviously, it hadn't been around that long, but how do you think we see that thing develop as coaches? see more and more that there is a glut of players uh, sitting in that thing that are, in some cases, two, three years' worth of experience in college football. Yeah, and there's also players, uh, There, somebody said a number of them, I, I forgot what it was, that, that never get looked at again. You know, they give up their scholarship and go somewhere else or to go somewhere else, and, you know, they get stuck. So it goes both ways. But, you know, from a coach's standpoint, you know, it gives you a chance to get a guy that might be already – have been in an off-season program, been in spring practice, uh, maybe a couple, maybe maybe four years of it somewhere, uh, and that's that's all the sports. So uh, you know, it gives a coach a chance to re- recruit kids that have more maturity and a little bit more proof of of um, you know what level they're really at, rather than taking a high school kid right out of high school. So I, I hope it doesn't just kill high school recruiting. It's going to hurt it for sure. Uh, and it's sure going to make it harder on coaches keeping good players. They might not be ready, you know. Maybe they don't play as much at, you know, at Ohio State or Florida or someplace like that that they would at a, at a smaller school. And you know, they'll jump and you know, not not stay and fight through it like we'd all, you know, like to teach young people to do. Um, and and just you know try to do it the easy way and that, that doesn't always work out either so kind of a two-headed monster both ways I think coach you think about your career and you know incredible success you uh, did it as a player of course did it as an assistant as a head coach national championship and uh, as an administrator and athletic director how, how do you reflect on all that having such incredible success and uh, doing it from a couple of different uh, angles there in college football. How do you reflect on your career, and how kind of how would you describe that journey? Well, I, I mean, I've I've been blessed, no, no question. I mean, to be able to to go to Tennessee and be around the teammates and coaches that I was able to be around, and fact is, you know, I'm hopeful to see Coach Dickey here, and, and, and you know, pretty soon he he's a Gator, but he he also you know did great things at Tennessee as a coach, and he was my athletic director and mentor and. And, uh, and then Coach Battle, you know, was there for a while and got me into coaching and, you know, ha- having the mentors that I, that I was able to be around and kind of establishing my own, you know, my own way uh, as well. And then surrounding myself with 
with just really great coaches, uh, assistant coaches and guys that went on and did really well in pro football or really well as a head coach themselves. David Cutcliffe being one of the examples. So uh, I look at I look at it as very blessed. And, you know, obviously there's ups and downs in anything. And uh, I never thought about being an athletic director, you know, but, I, you know, we kind of needed some balance or some – some energy around the program, and and I, I really enjoyed doing that. That was fun because I knew the place. I probably couldn't have done it anywhere else, to be honest with you. I wouldn't wanted to have done it, uh, but um, you know, hopefully I, you know, help. I know I helped in some ways and processes and things on campus. And our our, our president and, and and chancellor and athletic director and our our team there is completely on the same page now. And I, that wasn't necessarily the case for a long, for a long time there. So we think we've done some good things with that. And coach, finally, I mean, uh, you, I mean, when people think of the, you know, the state of Tennessee, obviously they think of you, you were Tennessee and through and through, I think out of maybe outside of four years of Wichita state, you spent your whole life in Tennessee. I mean, you were talking to the, you were talking to coach Burry. I mean, you and him, Share a, share a, a very, very similar, uh, you know, past being both guys that played at the same school that you took to the next level. What are those conversations like? I mean, now that you guys are no longer coaching, there's got to be some great conversations sitting there talking about the old days. Oh, we do. We, we, we enjoy talking about the games we had against each other, you know. Uh, you know, for forever the, the two or three things that happened that, that were weird, you know, the Dick Gaffney catch or, you know, the old one game or, I mean, just – or Gaffney, no catch, I should say, I guess. Uh, but, you know, it, no, it's fun. But, um, it's you know, it's you, you don't try to live in, in, in the past. You certainly celebrate it and enjoy it and, and that sort of thing. My, my big job now is I'm the assistant to the assistant peewee baseball coach, and that's that's about what I want to be doing right now <laughs> with, my, with my grandson. So, uh I tell, I tell, I said, you take care of the, the, the parents and buy the uniforms and manage all that, and I'll coach them. So we, we've had some fun with that. <laughs> Philip Fulber, our guest here on uh, 3 and Out. Coach, uh, we really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Have a, uh, a wonderful week, and, again, we appreciate you taking some time with us. Thank you, guys. Take care. Appreciate it. Philip Fulmer joining us here on 3 and Out Tennessee and Florida coming up this weekend. We've got more to come here 3 and Out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you here on this Tuesday. Kevin, BJ, and Ben here on 3 and Out. Georgia Tech nearly pulled off the uh, upset there on Saturday night in Clemson. Can they spin that forward into some progress there in the ATL with North Carolina coming up this weekend? Joining us here on the program, the voice of the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, Andy Demetra joins us here on 3 and Out. Andy, welcome. How are you? Doing well. How are you guys? Uh, doing fantastic. Uh, obviously, last weekend or last Saturday night there in Clemson, Georgia Tech nearly pulled off uh, the upset. Describe what you saw as you called that game. Is that a team that made significant progress? Uh, was it a team that played up? Is Clemson offensively not as good as we thought? What What did you kind of see there Saturday as, as Georgia Tech came within uh, potentially a few yards of pulling off a, a pretty significant upset? Well, I will acknowledge that Clemson is not the same offensive juggernaut they've been the last six years between Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence, but they're still plenty good and plenty talented. Um, that being said, I think what you saw was a Georgia Tech team that one year after losing 73-7 to Clemson, like you said, came within 
20 seconds, a touchdown and a two-point conversion away from sending them into overtime. So it, it was one of those rare instances where I think the team that loses actually gains some momentum from it. And we'll see if Georgia Tech can carry that into this weekend's matchup versus North Carolina. Look, the Northern Illinois game was very humbling. Georgia Tech played well for long stretches of that game, but they just couldn't put it all together. Um, sometimes you need to be humbled in the lifespan of a season. But what you saw last Saturday was a team that is getting more talented across the board, deeper, more competitive, and uh, you know we'll see if they can continue this grind through the ACC Coastal, building off what they did and how they performed versus Clemson to uh, you know to, to pick off some teams that may have had their numbers in years past, and we'll see if you can start this Saturday versus the Tar Heels. Andy, what was that final minute like from your perspective where you had all the drama, it comes down to a fourth down there at the goal line, and then you think it's over, and Clemson can't can't get out of their own end zone. You have a safety, uh, the onside kick. I mean, everything was just crazy for about a minute, minute and a half. What was that like from your seat? I would say that the mood inside Memorial Stadium, and granted after the lightning delay, only about oh, a third, maybe less than that of the fans who were there, came back to their seats, but you could still feel the pensiveness in Death Valley. And, and frankly, that is not feeling uh, that, that you experience much when you're the visiting team. Uh, but, you know, Georgia Tech, the way that they recovered that onside kick, which was a thing of beauty from Jude Kelly and a terrific catch along the sideline by Malachi Carter, the way that they converted a fourth down when Jordan Yates drops the snap and still was able to sidearm it out to Dylan Devaney, to be in a goal-to-go situation in the final minute where you have all your timeouts at your disposal, it couldn't have set up any better for Georgia Tech. But you know, Clemson, they've got future first-rounders all across their defensive line. Those final three yards or so, it might as well be 13 yards. That's why they're the best defensive front in college football. The fourth down play, you know, as Sean Bedford, my color analyst, said, it was set up the right way, and he actually really liked the play call where they showed them some speed option and then flip it on the shuffle pass to Dylan Devaney. But uh, James Galski was their six-year senior linebacker, stayed home on the play where a lot of other linebackers in that situation would have been flowing toward the football, and he just made a good play. Um, even then, to get that safety, I think that safety, uh, though it did not make an, a, a dent in the final outcome, encapsulated kind of toughness and competitive will and spirit that Georgia Tech had from the opening kick to the final whistle against Clemson. That was something that Jeff Collins talked about with his guys after practice today. That kind of effort level they had in Death Valley should be the standard for them every single Saturday. So even though they lost, they should hopefully gain some confidence from it and know that that is what they're capable of each and every week playing against some of the best of the best in college football. And how, how much of, how much of the end of the game had to do with the fact that Georgia Tech was still in the game? I mean, when let's face it, certain teams in the uh, in each division are the barometer. The gold standard in the ACC is Clemson, and that's what most teams judge their teams off of. How much of the end of the game had less to do with the play call, you know, or with the shovel pass, and more to do with the fact, hey fellas, we still in it because people talk about how good the game was. That Georgia Tech defense was lights out all night. Absolutely, you know that was the. Lowest, you know, and let's take away the total yards because Georgia Tech tried to shorten the game, and they did. Uh, if you the yards per play that Clemson managed against Georgia Tech, 4.3, you have to go all the way back to 2014 to find an ACC game where Clemson's offense averaged a lower yards per play average than they did on Saturday. So Georgia Tech was 
phenomenal, like you said. And you know what? What you saw was a team that gathered confidence because they were executing in the game plan, and the game plan was working. Georgia Tech threw some wrinkles at Clemson, offensively and defensively. They went to an odd man front. Davos Sweeney even admitted afterwards, Tech played a defense that they did not prepare for during the week because they didn't know it was coming. But this was something Jeff Collins pulled almost out of the 2005 playbook at Western Carolina when he was defensive coordinator there. Offensively, they huddled before every play because they didn't want Clemson to steal their signals. They gave a lot of pre-snap motion, different formations, because they didn't want to give Clemson a picture that would allow them to check into the right defense. So that was the game plan going in. It was going to be unorthodox, but it worked. And when a team senses that their game plan is working, continues to feed that confidence possession after possession. Even though Tech was never in front, you know, was always playing from behind, they never felt that they were out of the game. Uh, and I think a lot of that was just from the confidence they drew from the game plan really working. Andy Demetra, voice of George Tech Yellow Jackets, our guest here on 3 and Out. And, and Andy, you look at the offense uh, for, for Georgia Tech. Uh, Jameer Gibbs not in the game in that big fourth down in, in goal play, but given the number of backs, are you surprised that Dave Patnode hasn't changed the offense a little bit to feature a multi-back set or two, uh, given how deep they are at the running back position and get several of those guys on the field at the same time? Yeah, yeah, I would follow that under a good problem to have where you have not just Jordan Mason and Jameer Gibbs who are each dynamic in their own way, but you throw Dante Smith in there who's averaging better than 10 yards a carry. Uh, you know, there are only so many reps, snaps, and, and carries to go around, and, and that's part of what Dave Padnode is sifting through as he builds a game plan week by week. You know, Jameer Gibbs, he's a heck of a back. Uh, he doesn't go down easily on first contact. And, you know, you can quibble about whether he should or should not have been on that field for that final play. But over the course of the season, I think what you're going to see is Gibbs and Mason and Smith continue to be fresh. And so when you get into the middle of October, when that accumulated workload starts to take an effect on running backs who are the so-called workhorses, I don't think that's going to be the case with Georgia Tech's backfield. And that will only make them – better and better as this season goes on. So while it wasn't maybe a banner day for Jameer Gibbs and, uh, and for Jordan Mason, for that matter, and, and you could argue whether those two guys should have both been on the field, uh, not just on that final play or more two-back sets, yeah, they each create some, some issues for opposing defenses, but uh, the fact that they were able to stay fresh ultimately, if you take the long view on it, that's going to benefit Georgia Tech down the road. Defensively Saturday, you did a great job against DJ Uwe Angelale. Now you have Sam Howell. What's going to be the biggest key for Georgia Tech to maintain this success on the defensive side of the ball? Well, experience certainly helps in the back four, and Georgia Tech has the, the benefit of that. Uh, they have the third most combined career starts among its safeties and cornerbacks of any Power 5 team. Now, they won't have Tariq Carpenter for the first half. He was ejected for targeting late in the fourth quarter versus Clemson. So somebody like Jalen King or Derek Allen will have to step up for the first 30 minutes. But they have some stalwarts in the back who have played a lot together, and I think that can only benefit you when you're facing uh, somebody who's as capable as Sam Howell. So good at, at making calculated throws and quick throws to the perimeter. You have to be able to, to tackle in space. That goes without saying. Uh, you have to be wary of giving up anything over the top. Josh Downs has quickly cemented himself as one of the best wide receivers in the ACC. Uh, so you have to make sure that he doesn't get into a rhythm. And I, I think, guys, they have to do their work on first and second down. Even though they held Clemson to fewer than 300 yards Saturday, 
the Tigers still converted 9 of 15 third downs. Uh, and you just can't let North Carolina get into tempo, get rolling by converting multiple third downs into possession. Uh, so they have to see if they can tick that in the other direction if they want to uh, be able to compete with Sam Howell. But like you said, you know, to take uh, a team that has oftentimes had its way with opposing defenses in Clemson to play as well as Georgia Tech did, even though it's a different challenge, different set of circumstances, and a different scheme that they'll face this Saturday in North Carolina, uh, there's no substitute for confidence, as you guys know. And I, I think Georgia Tech will, will display plenty of that when they take the field defensively on Saturday. And Andy, with this with this remaining schedule, I mean uh, Georgia Tech. I mean this schedule is is, is only going to get rougher as the year goes on. And I know patience is definitely grown thin when you look at uh, you know Jeff Collins and his tenure there. But is there a win on this schedule that could kind of salvage the season? Even though I know the goal is to make it to six wins to get to a bowl game, but is there a game down the line if they can get a big win and then kind of salvage the season, kind of give these uh, Georgia Tech fans something to look forward to next year? Well, I, I would hope they would be very uh, emboldened by what they saw last Saturday, you know, and I would maybe take issue with you saying patience is wearing thin with Jeff Collins. It, that, that is not the case here. Uh, this is the beginning of year three, one of which was a COVID year where, you know, everything operationally uh, was just completely thrown into disarray. And Georgia Tech week after week had to worry about who was available and who was not. So, you know, I, I would take some issue with saying patience wearing thin or that they're trying to salvage a season. Look, there's no doubt that this is a rugged schedule. I mean, various formulas have Georgia Tech playing the second toughest strength of schedule in the nation this year. But if you're a Georgia Tech fan and you saw how this team competed over 60 minutes last Saturday in Death Valley, and oh, by the way, Clemson has the nation's active longest home win streak of 29 games, and not feel like looking ahead, as daunting as this schedule might be, that Georgia Tech is going to compete and put itself in position for wins. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe you're just too cynical and we can't see eye to eye on that. Um, but I, I think just what you observe from this Georgia Tech team should make you feel very good that Georgia Tech will be up to the challenge of, of this schedule where, like you said, including T- Clemson, they're playing nine of ten teams in a row that are either ranked or receiving votes as of last week. So, you know, again, one of those cases where you might not have gotten the result on the scoreboard last Saturday, but you draw momentum and confidence from that, and we'll see how that carries Georgia Tech moving forward. Andy Demetra, our guest here on 3 Now, the voice of the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. Andy, appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Anytime, guys. Appreciate it. And, again, uh, Georgia Tech, North Carolina this week, the, uh, the Tar Heels uh, in that basketball game on uh, grass with UVA last week, 300-plus yards passing, over, three, I think, 375 yards rushing. So, Six, seven hundred yards of total offense for North Carolina going to be a big challenge this weekend. Well, and I think the last couple of weeks you've seen North Carolina really scheme to use Sam Howell as a rusher. That's been kind of a new development for North Carolina offensively. So you know about Ty Chandler, you know about Josh Downs, the playmakers. Howell can spread the football. He's got a great arm, but that's something to keep an eye on. He's been running the football really well the last couple of weeks. Can Georgia Tech limit the production passing and rushing? But a great performance on Saturday. Held DJ Uyangalale to five yards per pass attempt. That is really, really impressive. Now you have to do the same thing against Sam Howell this weekend. 
I think this defense could definitely uh, help this team, uh, you know, as far as like uh, staying these games. I mean, if you could do it against DJU at, you know, uh, on the road against against Clemson, I know people are going to say, oh, maybe the offense isn't that good. Well, maybe Georgia Tech defense is just that good. I mean, you get a chance to go up against two guys back-to-back weeks that definitely have similar playing styles. Think about Sam Howe. Go to that Virginia Tech game, first game of the year. He will indeed throw the ball to the other team. You know, Kevin, as you mentioned, you just got to make sure you catch that thing and make, and make sure you put, you know, that it turns into points because this could end up being a big, big dub. Uh, you know, for them Georgia Tech boys, that they could take take that momentum from last week and uh, bring it into this week. And again, we'll see what uh, Jeff Collins has up his sleeve for the Tar Heels on Saturday night against North Carolina. We got more to come here on three and out, including uh, two programs that people expect big things from aren't necessarily delivering. We'll get to that next. Here it's three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Tuesday, Kevin, BJ, and Ben. We talked about last segment with Andy Demetra. Georgia Tech trying to take a step forward and uh, get back into the mix uh, on some level with uh, their ACC competition. Two teams that we have not seen kind of stay with their former glory, B.J. and Ben. That's Miami and Florida State. Miami, second time in three years they've started one and two. Uh, lost their one win right now is to, uh, to App State. Close. Uh, you have Florida State 0-3 for the first time since the 70s. Haven't been over 500 since early 2019. And Mike Norvell, I mean, if you fired Willie Taggart, Mike Norvell is rapidly heading towards a similar record uh, there in Tallahassee. And you've already got national media saying, why doesn't Florida State just hire Prime? Coach Prime there in, in Tallahassee. BJ, what, what does it take to try to get both of those programs back to a level that is, I guess, indicative of their history and kind of what the ACC, I believe, uh, expected they would see here, certainly with Miami once they brought them into the league. I think the I think the Miami talk is a little bit overblown, and I think to compare Miami to Florida State at this point is not fair to the Hurricanes. I know last couple of seasons you haven't had great starts necessarily, but last year Miami was eight and one. Okay, so I think there's a little bit of a difference in a Florida State program that has made what you know couple of bowl games out of the last four years and it's 0-3 and a Miami team that was 8-1 and last year and began the season in the top 15. You know, you look at Miami this year and they're 1-2, and but keep in mind, they lost to the number one team in the country and they lost to the number 20 team in the country. And I think the team they beat is probably top 25 good in App State. You go back to last year, we mentioned the start. The only loss was to Clemson. You go back to 19 when they had two losses to start the year. They lost at uh, North Carolina on a final play by three points, and they lost to Florida by four points. The year before that, they opened with LSU. So I don't think Miami – and the year before that, they started out 9-0. and So I don't think Miami is in the same place as Florida State. I think Miami's fine. I think people are overreacting a little bit to the way they lost to Michigan State. I understand, but – Every team in the country would have lost that week one game. Every single team. Maybe only a couple of teams could even have kept it close. But Florida State's in trouble. And you mentioned Florida State, Mike Norvell rapidly heading towards Willie Taggart's record. No, he's not. Uh, Willie Taggart at this point was much more successful than Mike Norvell. Now, the circumstances a little bit differently. You know, you heard Andy Metra talk about the COVID year and the difficulties of that being your debut year. I, I understand that. Uh, I think Florida State looked really good really good just the energy the momentum around the program against Notre Dame and you wonder had they won that game had the kick you know gone through and you know a couple of plays here and there changed would Florida State be in a different place 
but the reality is they're not. And you followed up the loss to Notre Dame with an inexplicable loss to Jacksonville State, not just losing to Jacksonville State. I mean, you see FCS over FBS upsets, but the way it happened. And then to look kind of out of sync against Wake Forest where you weren't even competitive. Um, I think Florida State's better than that. I think they have more talent than that. I, I still think they can play with just about anybody on their schedule, but there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a lot of confidence around that program. And, Ben, I don't know how you change that right now if you're Mike Norvell. How the mighty have fallen, and the the thing about the thing about Florida State is BJ. We we would always talk about maybe it was a Willie Taggart problem, but this goes back a long way. This is a Jimbo Fisher problem, and Jimbo Fisher. I mean, he left this. He left uh, Florida State in shambles. When you look at when I mean, this goes back even listen, BJ, and this even goes back to the Dalvin Cook days. We would talk about how great of a player Dalvin Cook was with the offensive line. That wasn't the best even when he was there. And you th- and the thing about Miami, I'm gonna say something that I heard, uh, you know, that I heard somebody say, Miami, they they're paying for what they used to be. You're not gonna get that anymore. Florida State, what, BJ, what in the nineties, lost thirteen games in all of the nineties. Yeah, 90s. yeah, yeah. Matt Smith tweeted it out. He said that in the entire nineteen nineties, and fans who are a little older will remember this, in the entire nineteen nineties, Florida State lost thirteen games. Just unfathomable to think about that. This next loss for Mike Norvell, whenever it comes, will be his 13th loss at Florida State. Uh, so that is that is pretty staggering to think about when you think about a little over a season compared to an entire decade in the 90s. For me too. I mean, I understand that like all three, all three teams and all three, all three of the big three uh, in the state of Florida had to, had to go through, you know, uh, you know, just a just a identity crisis, if you want to call it that. Florida had its time as well, but it, but they, but they got the right coach. I think Miami and Florida State are a coach away. Now, Mike Norvell, he, I mean, who knows? Maybe he can find a way to turn it around. But because you so, but because it's so. So quick behind uh, Willie Taggart, the fan base, they really don't want to have time for pay. You're talking about two of one of the mo- two of the most storied uh, colleges and universities in college. They are part of the college football fabric. So I can understand the legacy you up against. But I will say this. Former players from both Miami and Florida State, when you were talking trash about the current players, shame on you. Because it's so easy to talk about what you had when you was there. Well, most of the former players got coached under Bobby Bowden. The greatest coach of Florida State, and 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 the, and the players from Miami said when we was there, well, you ain't there. We we old enough to have kids at the school right now, so I I do understand the pressure that's on these young men because you're trying to live up to the standard uh, now and trying to make sure you you remember the past. Well, you talking about a story past that as about as good as it can get. I mean, don't Miami? What did Miami win uh, Natties with three different coaches or something like that? So I just I just think that. Sometimes it's it's unfair to the player because you can't the glory days will never ever be seen or heard from again. And I unfortunately for me, I got a chance to play against so played against Florida State in 2000. Chris Winkie won the Heisman. I got oranges to being thrown at me. Then I get to play against the 2000 Miami team in the in the in the bowl game. Then I get the 2002 and the 2003. Uh, Miami Hurricane. So it's not like I understand what these kids are up against, but it is rough. Because it's a lot of things that factor into it, but I think Miami is just the fact that they got to get the right coach. And I think with Florida State, I just think, BJ, it's not that the recruiting isn't there. It's just something isn't clicking right now. And unfortunately, with teams like Florida State and Miami ain't good, it matters to not just their fan bases. It matters to the whole entire college football landscape. Well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the intimidation factor with both of those programs is gone, right? I mean, I think you look at that from... A number of aspects uh, across college football. I mean, Nebraska, kind of the same thing. 
that, that used to go line up to play Nebraska. They were big. They were physical. They, the, intimidation, the, the intimidation factor with Miami and Florida State to me is gone. Where you walk into Dope Campbell and it's no longer hope we could keep it close. It's we think we could win. I mean, Wake Forest has been uberly successful against Florida State recently. That's, I mean, that's Wake Forest, uh, including several wins there in Tallahassee. Miami. I mean, it used to be you lined up against Miami, and it was they are going to beat us physically, and they're going to be faster than us, and they're going to out-athlete us, and they're going to you know beat us up uh, at the line of scrimmage. They don't do that anymore. I mean, people walk in against the Canes and think, hey, we have an opportunity to go out here and, and, and beat them. And I think that's a big part of it, uh, BJ, is that you don't have the swagger, you don't have that intimidation factor, both from the opposing teams and I think inside the own locker room. You, you used to have that... Uh, as you hear Michael Irvin and all those guys say, it's to you, man. Like, you don't come in here and push us around. I don't think the current players feel that uh, at all at, at Miami where they have that, look, this is the you. We have the best players in the country uh, right here out of South Florida, and you're not going to beat us. Not that you think you can. You're not going to. And I don't think they have that attitude anymore whatsoever. Yeah, I think, you know, the confidence, it looks like from afar watching, you wonder if the confidence is there. Talent's still at both places. I think if you can get a big play, turn that into a big win, you might see some momentum. But also, wanted to correct myself there, Mike Norvell is 3-9 and nine in Tallahassee. And the correct tweet from Matt Smith, Florida State lost 13 games in the 90s. They might have 13 losses in the 2020s uh, by, by the end of October of 2021. So that was a tweet there from Matt. I was wrong on the math i apologize with that but yeah i mean it, it you wonder if 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 it's something where a little success can lead to a lot more success but right now these are programs that are struggling especially florida state i just think at the end of the day bj and kevin i mean sometimes you know you, you see how hard it is to live up to some of these standards i mean florida state and miami two of the most two of the most storied uh, teams uh in college football when you talk about the legacy we talk about the coaches when you talk about the players when you talk about the moments when you talk about the memories so sometimes it's unfair to place that i mean nobody's gonna get nobody nobody's really you know jimbo fish he's on that 10 years 75 million he left he left florida state in a in a in a really really bad spot so now do we look do 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 you look back at Willie Taggart and say i apologize because maybe Maybe it really, really wasn't him if you're looking at what's going on with Coach Norvell. And let's face it, Manny Diaz is the head coach at Miami because he was a guy that was already in the system being the defensive coordinator. I mean, who's at Temple? Put his hat down. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, just did a press conference, got back on the plane, flew back to Coral Gables, and jumped on yachts talking trash. So I'm just saying – just get, just give it some time, which is not something we do well in college football. But, but, but Kevin, I mean, I'm just saying when you talk about these type of, these type of teams – even if they get back to even even if they get back to being relevant, then it's gonna be okay. Can you win the ACC? Because hasn't Miami only been to one ACC championship game since they've been in the ACC? So it's not like uh, since they've been there. I mean, the, the Big East days are long gone for this Miami team. But hey, man, that's why you play fair or unfair. That's why you go to these schools. Yeah, one one time. I think it would have been twice, but Miami took themselves out of it uh, as a uh, I guess self enforced punishment. So. But, yeah, in, in the entirety of the time they've been in the ACC, they've not really been a consistent contender to go play for at all in, the, in terms of the conference championship. And I'm sure for the ACC, that's not what they wanted. And certainly at Miami, not what they wanted either. We'll come back. We've got more to come. Three and out on the Here on three and out all across the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. A lot to get to in hour two. We'll take three. We'll look at some teams who have stock rising, some folks who have – Falling stock uh, here in the early parts of the college football season. Appreciate Andrew Metro, voice of the Georgia Tech football, joining us. And Phil Fulmer, national championship winner, college football Hall of Famer, SEC coach, Tennessee AD. 
Hour two here, three and out, all across the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Coming up this hour, we'll look at some players, teams, stock rising, some whose stock is uh, on the way down. We'll look at that coming up here in just a little bit. Also, Braves out west with a chance to extend the lead in the east. Did a little bit of that last night uh, as well. So we'll look at that coming up in just a little bit. But first, it's 4 o'clock. Let's take three here on three and out. All right, fellas, if you had to choose... What is the more difficult task, blocking Aaron Donald or tackling Derrick Henry? Uh, it's Aaron Donald. It's blocking Aaron Donald. First off, none of those two things are happening. None of those two things are coming close to happening. But I do think in terms of tackling Derrick Henry, I can at least get away with kind of a decent effort without totally getting my entire body destroyed. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, even even in the league, guys that are smaller, when you see Derrick Henry turn the corner, you're going for the legs, right? You're trying to trip him up. You're not like standing up and trying to take him full on. That's not possible and you're gonna get run over. But at least in theory, you're trying to go down, use the shoulders, use the arms, wrap him up and kind of grab him low. Well, blocking is a little bit different. To try to block someone, I at least in theory have to kind of use the totality of my body to stop the totality of his body. And Aaron Don, I mean, both these guys are just athletic, athletically incredible. But I think when it comes to Aaron Donald, the explosiveness, the strength, the size, the burst right off the line of scrimmage, and that's all of him coming at all of me. That's not going to go well. That That's going to be a medically dangerous situation. So neither are going to be good, but I think more difficult task will be blocking Aaron Donald. Whew, man, you talking about, uh, man, is there is there a neither? Can I go neither? No, it's, I think I think in this situation, uh, you know, Derrick Henry is usually going up against guys either his size or smaller than him, and sometimes he gets one-on-one. Uh, Aaron Donald, he's getting he's he, he's going up against 600 pounds at, at least every single play. He's getting double teamed every single play, and you still can't block him. So one guy sometimes you know gets game tackled, and sometimes he gets to go up against a DB, and the DB can still get him down. Whereas the other guy, I mean, the other guy's undersized. I mean, I don't know how I don't know how big Aaron Donald is, but he ain't that much bigger than Derrick Henry. He, I mean. When you look at so for me, it's always going to be Aaron Donald. Aaron Donald is not considered; he is the best defensive player in the NFL, the best. And he goes up against two grown men that weigh over 300 pounds every single play, and they can't stop him. Now, Derrick Henry, make no mistake about it. Now, it ain't easy getting him down, but if you had to pick Josh Norman, how about you go for his legs and don't get that stiff arm? And now you're mean and all the kind of other stuff. But yeah, it's. It's going to be Aaron Donald every single play. I mean, the thing about it is this. Derrick Henry rushed for 2,000 yards to only make it in the top 10 of the uh, of the top 100 players. Aaron Donald is in the top five every year since he's been in the league. One guy, you know, rushed for 2,000. He might have a, a 90 uh, on Madden. The other guy is a 99. His cleats are gold. So, yes, yeah, give me Aaron Donald every time. It's it's tackling Derrick Henry. I mean, again, for me, my arm's not getting around those legs. That's a lose every time. I don't care if I'm going for the legs, tackling up high. No. I mean, Eric, that's something I know I physically can't do. I can at least stand in the way of, of Aaron Donald for half a second. I will, say, I, will, I will say that. Might not go well, but it's no worse than the Falcons' offensive line. So, I mean, yeah. Oh, and there it is. So there you go. We've got uh, moving along. Take two. Speaking of the Falcons and Jags, does it feel like you're watching a different sport when you watch Jags and Falcons versus, say, a Chiefs-Ravens matchup? I mean, yeah. You know, the Ravens-Chiefs game was, what, 36-35, back and forth. 
big plays early, big plays throughout, big plays late, drama. Uh, yeah, the only drama with the Jaguars and Falcons would be, hey, could they could they cover the spread? You know, could they you know can they get within ten? Uh, yeah, uh, they're on a different level right now. When you think about Kansas City, Baltimore, some of the elite teams in the league, and Kevin, you joke about the offensive line. I mean, I think a lot of the issues for both Atlanta and Jacksonville are along the front line. I know I know Jacksonville likes some of the young guys they have, but there was a stretch where I was watching on Sunday of about uh, five minutes of game action where Andrew Norwell had two penalties and got blown up off the ball. And I understand he was a you know an all pro in Carolina and has had some good moments in Jacksonville, but you can't function with a rookie quarterback when your line's not consistent. And you know, Cam Robinson's had ups and downs. I think you like what you've seen out of Jawan Taylor, but you don't have great depth and you've had some inconsistency up front with your starters. And then Atlanta's offensive line, I mean, we were talking about this in the show meeting with Christian. One thing that I don't understand, and maybe you can provide some perspective on this, Ben, is why we draft guys and then move move positions right away to a position where they've never played. Jalen Mayfield was a tackle at Michigan. So if he played tackle at Michigan, why do we think we're going to bring him to the highest level of football and give him a start at a position where he may know a little bit, but certainly doesn't know more than his collegiate position of tackle? There's going to be a learning curve when you're a rookie. When you're a rookie playing a new position, it's going to be dramatic. Uh, Caleb McGarry's had some health issues. He also, at times, has struggled along the front line. So I think the biggest difference is the offensive production between some of the great teams and some of the bottom tier teams. And I think a lot of that is due to play at the offensive line. I really do. No, the reason why the reason why you see something different from a Jags uh, Atlanta game versus uh, you know Chiefs versus the Ravens, you got two teams that are fighting to stay relevant versus two teams that are a part of the you know uh, the fabric of the NFL. You got two former MVPs uh, going up against each other, you know, in uh, you know, in Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. And you got a guy in Lamar Jackson who always understands that every single time he plays, he plays like you've never seen him play. He's always trying to get over the hump to kind of validate that he should have been the MVP two years ago. And he's the guy that's definitely uh, worthy of the face of the league. When you watch in Atlanta, you BJ, you talking about guys playing out of position. Cordell Patterson, he gets more touches at running back than Mike Davis. He gets more touches. Then, when you talk about the Jags, I'll be trying to – look, the Jags won one game in 2020. One. And they had more veterans on their team. Then now their average age is what, 22, 23? That's the average age. Urban Meyer, you're going to have to learn to lose in order to learn how to win in the NFL. Trevor Lawrence, they think because of what he did in Carrollton, they think that what he did in Clemson is going to happen in the league. No, no, no. So the, and 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 with Atlanta, I mean, where, where do you want to start? Defense can't stop nobody. I mean, you know, uh, yes, outside of throwing the ball to Kyle Pitts and giving the ball to a receiver, more do you give it to the running back and Matty Ice throwing pick sixes. It's gonna be a long Sunday for these Atlanta Falcons. So yeah. Thank God for the Chiefs. Thank God for the Ravens because at least it gives us the time and it shows that you can actually be down against the former Super Bowl champs and still come back and win because you got Lamar compared to, you know, Matty Ice and those guys. It's rough. And when you, th- when you talk about Jacksonville, hey, I heard I heard the water's warm at the stadium. I mean, I'm just saying, what, what, what else can I say about the Jags at this point? Is there a deep end? You just finished it in. <laughs> Is a pool or a hot tub? Sir, did you pay for this pool? Man, I'm hot. <laughs> Sir, did you pay for this? Man, I'm, I'm getting in. Speaking of Jacksonville, we move along to take three. How epic is the Jacksonville world's largest outdoor cocktail party setting up to be with Florida's run game versus Georgia's run defense? 
Georgia, Florida, man. I mean, it's as big as it gets. I think we should have known at the beginning of the season that this was going to be a game with national implications, going to decide the SEC East. But, yeah, I think the game within the game is is going to be extraordinary. Uh, right now, Florida's number two in the nation in rushing, and that's after playing Alabama. I mean, one-third of your games have been against Alabama, and you're number two in the nation in rushing. That's incredible. And what's really cool about Florida's rushing offense is it's not one guy. Florida doesn't have, like, a feature back. Uh, they, they have five running backs with over 99 yards, uh, or, or, or three running backs, I should say, and two quarterbacks, five players. Anthony Richardson, Emory Jones, Malik Davis, Damian Pierce, and uh, and uh, Naquan Brown. And what's been cool about watching the rotation, it's been different guys coming up with big plays. First couple of weeks, it was Anthony Richardson. You know, here's the Anthony Richardson highlight of the quarter. There's the 75-yard run or the long throw. Emory Jones had some really big conversions on third down running the football against Alabama. Malik Davis was, was kind of your number one back against Alabama, had over 80 yards rushing. And then it was Pierce with the big touchdown that brought you within two, uh, a run from 16 or 17 yards out. So Florida's running game, it is an amazing turnaround when you think about last season and Florida not even trying to run the football to this season, then being one of the best teams in the country at doing so. And I think this is more of kind of a Dan Mullen offense in the truest sense, spread it around, use the playmakers, Copeland over the top, the tight ends got involved, but all of that is based on a running attack that features two, three, four, five players even. So I think that's been good to see. And listen, Georgia's defensive front is overwhelming. Jordan Davis uh, is probably kind of today's version of Terrence Cody. I was thinking about that the other day. Who's a good comp for, for Jordan Davis? I think Mount Cody when he was at Alabama and just shutting things down and opening it up for the rest of the linebackers, whether it's Channing Tindall, whether it's Nolan Smith, Adam Anderson, Nicobe Dean, the depth along the defensive line. And right now, Georgia, who's led the nation in rush defense in back-to-back years, by the way, is one of only six teams in the country who have not allowed a rushing touchdown. So Georgia's going to basically draw a line in the sand and say, beat us here. And I think Florida's going to feel like they can. So, yes, it's going to be great. And that game within the game is going to be as good as it gets. What it, what it, what is it? The the unstoppable force meets the immovable object, or whatever or whatever they call it. But doesn't it just add to the pageantry? It, it adds to the prestige. Adds to, adds to the tradition and the storylines. But that's what you want. Like at least it was going to be a storyline, no matter what this game was, right? No matter what the records were, no matter the East is on the line, which is what you want. But. It's been a long. It's, this has been the only time in uh, Dan Muller's tenure that they've had a running game. They haven't even tried. Well, I want to say they did attempt that to run the football. Uh, you know, when Dan Muller first got there, they just realized it's not working. But credit credit Florida's offensive line. You went from, I mean, really, what bottom the bottom feeders of of college football as far as running the football to being the number two ranked rushing attack in the country, like you said, BJ, after uh, facing Alabama, which means you got you. We're going to live with what got us here. Being down 21-3 to in the running game is what got you back in the game. The running game is what almost, you know, helped you win the game. I don't know what that, you know, the two-point conversion was, which it was a lot of bad uh, two-point conversions going on in college football on Saturday. But the thing about Georgia's defense, BJ, as you, meant, as you mentioned, Jordan Davis in the middle. When you talk about Nolan Smith and those guys, you're talking about Nicobe Dean and those guys. It, that, once again, I know I keep saying this, but how good are you? Put, put my talent versus, uh, up against a guy who's equally or more talented than me, and let's see. 
Football is when mono and mono creating a new line of scrimmage three yards in a cloud of dust. That's called that's called mentality. That's called attitude. That's called I am better than you and I'm gonna move you off the ball against your will. It's making somebody do something they don't want to do. It's looking them in their face and saying, you don't got to like it. I mean, look, and they running the ball behind me. You don't got to guess. I'm going to tell the running back to look the way he's going. But that's what you want. Coming from a guy that, you know, used to love to catch the football talking this trash now. But I, I I just think that it just adds it just adds to the to the drama, right? Because Georgia and Florida have a, have a genuine – and BJ, I take, I take uh, you know, I'm just saying. I mean, you say it was Georgia-Florida game. I think it's the Florida-Georgia game if you, if you ask me. So I'm – but – you know, but I just I just think that when you talk about this game, you learn a lot about yourself because the barometer is Georgia. And Florida understand like when they asked Dan Mullen how, how many points is Florida behind Georgia last year, he said, well, two years ago he said seven. Well, they spotted Georgia 14 points last year, came back and won the game. So yes, it's gonna add to it. And if you Florida, this is what you love. And if you Georgia, hey, if you if you are who you say you are, go out there and prove it again. I love it. I will not be at the game because, well, the first time I didn't go to the game, Florida won. I'm, I'm not superstitious. I'm just saying I'm not gonna be at the game. That's all. Make sure you know that. Ben's got the phobia to watch the Gators on TV. <laughs> can't do it. I can't I do it. I, I, don't can't, know why. I can't do it in person. I was there when it was twenty-one to zero in the first quarter, and those Georgia beat writers were talking trash. And I looked at producer Jim and said, "Producer Jim, I got bail money. My wallet is right here because I'm about to dive <laughs> on this whole left side over here." <laughs> that's <laughs> that's take three. We do it every day. This time we'll come back. We'll stock up, stock down. We'll do it next here on three and a half. Good to have you here on this Tuesday. Obviously, three games into the season, we got some folks who are. A little better than we thought they would be. Maybe some who were a little worse uh, than we thought they would be. Going to do a little stock up, stock down here with you guys, BJ and Ben here. A couple of teams, a couple of players, coaches here who get your thoughts. Stock up or stock down. Let's start with some teams. Auburn, big early wins against some teams they probably were better than. Then they go to Penn State. Close. Lose, though, on the road to Penn State. Auburn, stock up, stock down. Where are you at with the Tigers? Yeah, I think I'll still go stock up. And to your point, it's not like they won a game they weren't expected to win. I think if you would have asked most people on paper where would Auburn be after three games, they probably would have said two and one, a couple of wins early, and then maybe you lose a close one at Penn State. But it's not the total production that necessarily impresses me. It's the proficiency. And the biggest question was, are we going to see Bo Nix complete a high percentage of his passes? Is he going to throw the ball downfield? Is he going to take care of the football? And the answer so far is yes, even against Penn State. Uh, I think defensively, Auburn has looked really good, a credit to Derek Mason, still one of the top teams in the country in just about every defensive category statistically. Maybe a little bit of progress still needs to be made along the offensive line, but like the the kind of cohesion and fluidity I've seen out of Auburn. I still think they're a team, even if you're Alabama, that has your complete attention. Look, you go up and you play Penn State on the road at night within one score, that might not be what you wanted, but that's a solid performance. So new coach, new coordinators, you know, uncertainty at quarterback entering the season. You seem to stabilize things. I'll say stock up for Auburn. I'm going to go stock down for the simple for the simple fact that I think when you talk about this Auburn team, I mean, I understand that uh, Bo Nix is a guy that, uh, you know, uh, has played in hostile environments, has played in big-time games. I mean, in 2019 with the LSU Tigers, I mean, I think they played them close. I think uh, LSU beat them by by three points. But, I mean, I judge you when, when the competition is, is, is equal or more. And when the competition was equal, I mean, Bo Nix didn't play his best. Now, now Penn State – I mean, uh, now uh, – 
you know, Penn State did get some help from the refs, but I think when you are Auburn looking forward, you want to know how do we compete, you know, in a hostile environment against those against that caliber of team that that of a LSU, that of a and M, that of a that of a Ole Miss, that of a Alabama, and it doesn't give you a lot of confidence moving forward. I know that each week uh, in college football is its own chapter, but I think for Bo Nix and what he did the first two games compared to last week, it doesn't even compare. Averaging sixty points a game. To, to what they did on Saturday. So for me, I'm going to say stock I mean stock down as well as uh, for the for the team as well as uh, Bo Nix. All right, uh, Virginia Tech, a team that came out opening week, got a big win over North Carolina. A lot of folks said, oh, maybe Virginia Tech a little bit better uh, than we thought they were going to be. Then they lose on the road to an unranked West Virginia team. Stock up, stop, stock down on the Hokies. I'll still go stock up because I try to look at the totality of, of the resume and you do feel like you left one on the table against West Virginia because you lost by one score or six points, I believe, and you finished the game uh, with an opportunity to score inside West Virginia's five-yard line and you couldn't do it. So you feel like a missed opportunity there. But if you go back to the summer and people were looking at the ACC Coastal, you heard a lot about North Carolina. You heard a lot about Miami. You heard a lot about Pittsburgh, and there really wasn't that much talk about Virginia Tech. Then it's like, oh, yeah, Virginia Tech will be somewhere down there with Virginia, and right away they changed that. Uh, you're disappointed that you weren't able to quite finish when you had a big lead. You had a multi-score lead early that you weren't quite able to finish in the rivalry game of West Virginia, but you still have a win, a head-to-head -head win over the best team in your division. North Carolina is still a top-20 team nationally, and you have that win. I think when you look at some of the players, there were questions at quarterback, right? Hendon Hooker moves on to Tennessee. Are you going to be able to move the football up and down the field? Braxton Burmeister, former Oregon quarterback, has done a really good job. So I think Justin Fuente has calmed some of the hot seat talk, and I'll still go stock up on Virginia Tech. I'll go stock up on Virginia Tech as well. I think I think too often at times we talk about a team in Virginia Tech that's not going to get uh, the preseason uh, hype. It's not going to get the preseason fanfare because it is Virginia Tech because they don't they, they don't they don't they don't got the sexy name like like Sam Howell or De'Aaron King, you know, or DJU. But the thing about Virginia Tech is, yes, they played down to a West Virginia team, but. Kevin, sometimes the ACC will ACC accept in you know uh, you know uh, an out of conference play, but I, I I just think that sometimes we we get too caught up in the team, like we don't want to let go of the teams that we had you know big time preseason aspirations for. But I think the stock is up for Virginia Tech, a very very dangerous team because they prove when they play a team like like North Carolina, they can go out there and uh, you know uh, play up to uh, to eat the better competition. Or sometimes maybe North Carolina isn't as good as we think, and maybe Virginia Tech is just better than we than we expect them to be. And sometimes you do have those letdown games. I do. I do think their stock is still up. I do think they're gonna bounce back with it. With it, you know what? Obviously, uh, the meat and potatoes of the AC schedule uh, coming up. So yeah, I would go stock up on Virginia Tech. I just think they just had a letdown game in Week Three. All right, what about a couple individuals here? Stock up, stock down. Mike Leach uh, coming into Year Two at Mississippi State. He's had some interesting wins. Had a loss last week to uh, to Memphis. Are you stock up, stock down on Mike Leach right now at Mississippi State? I think I'll still stay stay with the stock up because I think they're a really difficult matchup. And if you're a team in the SEC and Mississippi State's on your schedule, I think there's a little bit of apprehension because they're going to throw it, Ben, as you said earlier in the week, Will, Will Rogers is going to throw it 50 times. And because of that offensive style, they're a real threat to score points in bunches. Now, we've seen great examples of that. LSU last year, we've seen examples where it has not worked. Kentucky last year, but you go back to the start of the fourth quarter 
uh, against Louisiana Tech in their first game, they were down 20 points at the start of the fourth quarter. They were down 34 to 14 and came back and found a way to win that game with the offense really finding itself in the fourth quarter. And then I go back to that win over NC State. That was a really good win over NC State. NC State is a solid team. For whatever reason, didn't look the part uh, in Starkville. But I give Mississippi State credit for that. And then the Memphis game, Memphis is a good team as well, a top 25 team. You had the controversy in that game where the SEC officials had to come out and say, we literally got it wrong. So it's hard for me to kind of chalk that up as a negative when the SEC officials said they messed it up. So I'll still go stock up with Mike Leach. I would go stock up for Mike Leach because he's doing what he was paid to do. His his job was to come in and shake up, uh, you know, the SEC West with, with the style of play they do on offense. Now, obviously the bottom line is winning games, but when BJ, when you talk about the fact that a team that can be down 34 to 14 and come back and win the game shows you that, you know, uh, they're always going to be in it. His job is to keep pressure on the opposing team, his team to be in it in the fourth quarter and try to and try to come out with a dub. Nobody expecting Mississippi State uh, – uh, to win the SEC West, they, Mississippi State expects to win six games and win the Egg Bowl. That, that, that's, that's, that's what Mike Leach is there for. And he's providing a different level of play in the SEC. I mean, when people saying, hey, so if Mike Leach go back to anything but the air raid, who is he? He has no identity anymore. So I would go to his stock is still up. Mississippi State stock is still up. As long as if they can get to six wins, he's more than doing the job. And look, the fact that his quarterback averages 50 throws a game when everybody else might throw the ball 50 times in two games, I would say the stock is still up on them and on the Mississippi State boys. And that NC State uh, win is going to prove to be an even bigger win depending on how NC State finish up the year. All right. And then one more to go here, fellas. Stock up, stock down. A, uh, a guy who's had – Maybe his starting status questioned by the fan base. Uh, maybe there's a there's a younger guy behind him that a lot of folks are excited about. That's Emory Jones at Florida. Stock up, stock down. Played really played well, I thought against uh, against Alabama. You can question some things, but is he stock up, stock down with you here through the first three games? Yeah, I've gone back and forth on this because when you look at the overall statistical production, the numbers haven't been great. Uh, but but I will think I'll I'll go stock up because he had a gritty performance against Alabama and that's the that's the best team in the country that's the biggest stage uh, the regular season has to offer in college football a game with Alabama and you're right Kevin he was good uh, you know had the interception but completed a high percentage of his throws uh, had I think about 200 yards passing and had close to 100 yards rushing. And against Alabama, you know, if you want to have the Alabama multiplier, you take every, you know, yard and multiply it by kind of a yard and a half because their defense is so good. And Emory Jones during that game also led Florida on a 99-yard drive. Uh, and when Florida needed conversions late, he was there. I thought he showed a lot of leadership, a lot of toughness, uh, made some big plays. Now, do I think Anthony Richardson should get more looks? Yes, absolutely. We'll have to see what his health status is. But Emory Jones played a big role in you taking Alabama to the brink. So because of that, I will go stock up. Of course the stock is up for the simple fact that, I mean, he lost to Alabama, but you got to, you got to think about the circumstances for which, you know, how he played. And I would, I would always say that your, your, your best competition always comes from within the room. So we understand what Anthony Richardson brings to the table. But the thing is, Anthony Richardson is a, is a, is a, is a big play guy in spurts. Not, he's never had to start the game, so we don't know how good Anthony Richardson will be throughout the course of the game. But, I mean, Emory Jones, the whole world was watching, 21-3, to and he led them back. He didn't do it through the air. He did it with his legs. So the, the RPOs or, have, or, or have, being a dual threat is helping him. And we just expect Emory Jones to pick up where Kyle Trask left off. They're totally, two totally different players. 
And they throwing the, the totally different players. But I will say with Emory Jones, I would say his stock is up because of how he did it against who he did it against. I mean, he he understands that it's gonna be a week in, week out, uh, you know, a pop quiz for him because people because in his situation, he don't get judged by what he does. He get judged by what he doesn't do. So they're gonna they're gonna they ain't gonna go off the throws he made. They're gonna go off the throws he didn't make. Well, BJ and Kevin, when's the last time a team played Alabama down twenty one to three and the quarterback did not have a good game passing the game and they lost by two? It ain't too many guys that can do that in college football. So yes, it may sound like a little homerish over here, but I can I see the whole game for what it is and to to wield themselves. I mean, he could have he could have thrown the towel twenty one to three. So I would say his stock is still up. And Anthony Richardson, until he can prove he can do it from the opening kickoff until the last until the, until. Uh, all zeros on the clock. I still uh, say Emory Jones is a guy moving forward. So, yeah, stock is still up. We'll stock up, stock down here with you guys on a Tuesday. We'll come back. More to come. We'll switch a little gears. Braves out on the West Coast. Do they have a chance to make some hay here before you get to the final week of the season? Could they put this thing to bed with a, with a solid week here? We'll get to that next. It's three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Southern Pigskin Radio Network, Kevin, BJ, and Ben. <laughs> I hear the the light tiptoes of Big Troop coming back no, into no, the studio. No, 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 no. You can blame BJ because BJ started giving me that little, that little, you know, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Grinch uh, little smile he got, and I was like, oh. And, and Kevin tried to come back all soda. I know what Kevin's doing. Kevin's probably here telling, telling, uh, telling Kevin, come on, Kevin, bring us back, bring us back. Yeah, no, no, I, I got it, I got it. No, we got uh, a lot to get to still come on the show, but uh, Braves tonight uh, out in Arizona, a big win last night. Adam Duvall with a mammoth home run, and guys, could we be seeing one of the best offensive teams? Now, I know if you look at the season-long numbers, it may not be that way because the Braves have added some guys, uh, you know, mid-year, and obviously guys like Solaire and others whose stats happen in the American League don't, I guess technically count towards what they're doing with uh, the Braves in the National League. But you look at just about every position on the field right now, uh, BJ, and you will have a guy, uh, and even Ronald Acuna, who hasn't played in a long time due to that uh, that injury. You have a number of guys who are going to hit over 25 home runs here in, in 2021, almost at every position. I think the catching spot will be the only spot where it doesn't happen, and Travis Darno missed a bunch of time, but he's got 20 home run power in his career. So you literally could be looking at, and if you want to bring a guy like Solaire back, Adam Duvall potentially uh, next year, if you're looking ahead to the DH, uh, you could potentially put forth a lineup. Let's assume the DH, because I think Major League Baseball wants it, even if Kevin Thomas doesn't. You could be looking at a lineup where everybody in it could hit over 20 home runs and eight of the nine could probably hit 30 home runs uh, on their resume. Are we looking at one of the best assembled offensive units we've ever seen in the Atlanta Braves history in terms of every position just annihilating the baseball? I think we definitely are. You know, uh, maybe maybe a month or two ago, it was fair to kind of ask that and still have some hesitancy. But I think now with the production you've brought in, Solaire's been great. Duvall's been remarkable. Uh, Rosario's been tremendous now. We saw him hit for the cycle a couple of nights ago. I think that you are, yes, looking at a kind of generational lineup here, especially with the power numbers. And we talked for a while about the infield and how this is a – a, a, a historic performance collectively from the infield. And that's absolutely true. But when you look in the outfield, I'm not sure that people fully appreciate what's going on there. Adam Duvall, who we all know has great power. He hit one like 483, like you said last night. He leads the National League in RBI. 
Now, granted, a good portion of the season was spent with Miami, but Adam Duvall is the National League leader in RBI, and he's a guy that still isn't your best hitter for the Braves. I think if you're being honest, you would say Freddie Freeman, you would say Ozzie Albies, you would say Austin Riley. Then you get into Adam Duvall, and he's the leader in the league and, and has, what, Kevin, close to 40 home runs. I think he's at, at 37. So the depth of this lineup is what's incredible is you have, you know, you have Ozzie and, and, and Solaire right off the bat. Then you have Freddie and Riley, and both of those guys are MVP candidates. Then once you get through those four, oh, here's the top RBI man in the whole league. And that's without Ronald Acuna, who is probably going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, the way things are going. So Alex Anthopoulos has done a great job. Uh, the, the Solaire move was brilliant because I think a lot of us saw kind of the writing on the wall with Adam Duvall where it was like, okay, he's right there. The Marlins don't care. He's been a great brave for a couple of years. Bring Adam Duvall back. But I think when Solaire was brought in, Jorge Solaire, you looked around and went, wait a second, I know this name. And then you go look on baseball reference. Yeah, he led the American League in home runs a couple of years ago. And now he's just another power bat in the lineup. So, yes, these guys can hit. And granted, once every couple of weeks, you'll have one of the swing and miss games where you score one or two and the power is not there. But for the most part, Ben, that power is there every night. If we look, I mean, I know I know it's only four years in the Alex Anthopoulos and Snitz tenure together, but I mean, this might be the best collection of talent they have together, not named Ronald Acuna Jr. When you look at all the circumstances, I mean, the thing is, I mean, you, this is how good this team is. You people don't even talk about Marcelo Zuna because you ain't missing what he would have brought to this lineup. That's how good this lineup is. And Kevin, I mean, I know Danby Swanson is doing something we've never seen for a shortstop and Braves here. And then I, I know. I always say this when it comes to the Braves. The people saying they have arguably the best infield. I would say they have the best infield because Austin Riley this season, he was vying to be the everyday starter at third base. Now he's a MVP candidate. And when you look at Solaire, Rosario, and different guys that got added uh, during the trade deadline, I mean, give, give Alex Anthopoulos a lot of credit because he goes, I want a star, but I want somebody that fits this roster. I want somebody that can gel with these guys. And you look at what, what everybody's doing, I mean, and you're going to – I mean, you, you, obviously you're not looking ahead to 2022 when you add, uh, you know, Ronald Acuna Jr. to this lineup. All these guys can mash. I mean, every last one of these guys can mash, and that's, that's got to make you feel good uh, as a pitcher knowing that, look, I got, I, got, I got offense on my side. These guys can light it up with the best of them, and you see what happened last night. But, Kevin, I mean, I always, you know, I always go to you when you look at when you think about the Braves and every, from win loss win loss win loss what they do with the trade deadline to who do they get to know to find themselves leading right now and to be doing it offensively in spite of Mr. Will Smith you know I mean you got to talk well, about the good and the bad you got to, you got to give a lot of credit to uh, to Alex Anthopoulos you know for putting this team together and obviously Snit having to deal with who's going to be in the lineup you know a day and night yep. in and night out I mean I would say in spite of just your bullpen in, in general and, and by and large you have some bright pieces there but you have Will Smith who's been inconsistent I know I was riding for him at one point BJ but Richard Rodriguez has not been awesome uh in his last four or five outings uh and you're able to overcome uh some of those things uh with with that offense last night you're sitting there early in the game going, man, th this is going to be a, one of those series where uh, the Braves mess around with the Arizona Diamondbacks. It's 3-3, three, it's three to three, and you're thinking, this is such an important series against a mediocre team. you got to do it. And then with the flip of a switch, the Braves just start annihilating the baseball all over the park, and you really see uh, what they bring to the table. I I'm hard-pressed to, to remember one through eight 
when they've had this many guys who could leave the ballpark and drive the ball to the fence. I, I, you just you just haven't seen it. Uh, you've had some guys who are good contact contact hitters. You could say, well, what about you know guys like Nick Marquez? He can hit. I'm sorry, Nick Marquez was a good contact hitter. He did hit home runs, not the way Jorge Soler can do it, not the way Adam Duvall's doing it right now. I mean, Adam Duvall. People don't think about this, BJ. I mean, Adam Duvall has almost 40 home runs because you don't think about the ones he's hit with with the Marlins. You just think about what he's done with the Braves, but he has almost 40 home runs in 2021. I mean, that is incredible. And, uh, again, you, I, I believe uh, with the guys who are on the team, you could have six or seven guys who play regularly, I think at least six, who play regularly in the lineup over 30 home runs. Over 30, that's 180 home runs with my horrible math skills from six guys on, on the roster, potentially. And, uh, again, that's with Ronald Acuna, who had 24-25 when he got hurt, not in the lineup. Uh, this is a team, if you could keep some of these guys together, that has the potential to bludgeon the baseball uh, moving into the next season with a lot of guys on friendly contracts uh, and certainly the guys that make high money on short contracts. So, Man, you have to like where this team is offensively. Max Free continues to pitch well. I think you feel good about two or three of your pitchers. Guys at the back end of the bullpen, guys at the back end of the rotation make you nervous, and that may be ultimately what gets you. But, man, take a minute and appreciate what you're watching offensively with this Braves team because I, I don't think statistically, and BJ, you know me, I will say if I say it, you know it must be pretty good because I try to stray away from the hyperbole about things. But I am hard-pressed to find an offensive team that hit the ball for power the way this Braves lineup does here in 2021. Well, and you have Freeman and Riley right there in the middle of the order who are MVP candidates. I mean, they are in the National League. May not win it, but they are candidates. But I want to ask you quickly here, Kevin, a question that I've been asked. Uh, Should Adam Duvall be in that conversation I know he spent part of the season with Miami, but you have the National League leader in RBI. Uh, he's either second or third. By, I'm getting my computer to load up the other page. He's either second or third in the National League in home runs. Now, the batting average is not great. He's not a guy that's going to hit 285, but with his power and what he's doing for a team in a division race, I mean, should his name at least be thrown in there? It's an interesting thought. I would say no. Uh, simply because of what Freddie Freeman and Austin Riley are doing. I, I feel like they would be ahead of him uh, in the line. I think Austin Riley had three doubles <laughs> last night. So I, I look at it and say, yes, he's had a phenomenal year. Uh, but, no, I wouldn't put him in that category. I would say uh, Austin Riley, Freddie Freeman ahead of him in the line, if you're talking about Braves candidates for that. So, look, important series, BJ, three more with the Diamondbacks who are four, have won 47 games and lost over 100 already. Phillies lost last night. You got a three-game lead. And how ironic is that, BJ? We, we talk here on the show all the time. Ben, got to do well against the bad teams. In the last two or three weeks, the Phillies have lost five games to the Diamondbacks and the Orioles, hands down the two worst teams in baseball. Yeah, and Ben, the Diamondbacks are who the Braves are dealing with. If you can sweep this series, that may wrap it up with the way the Phillies are going. The Phillies got shut out by the Orioles last night. Not the Braves problem, Phillies. Keep doing what you're doing. Braves, keep doing what you're doing. Don't have to worry about, uh, you know, scoreboard watching. Phillies, keep on playing down the lesser competition. The Braves keep taking care of lesser competition. And I think the season will end up the way it should be. 
We got more to come here on Three and Out on this Tuesday. Hit us up on Twitter at Pigskin Radio, 912-342-7184. Love to hear from you here as well on Three and Out. Today, Kevin BJ and Ben, thanks for making us a part of your day. And Ben, the book is out today. You can buy uh, order the, uh, the the physical copy or the or the e copy. What, what did you guys call it? Is it the, the i e, copy? The e the, 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 e-bo- the, e-books. the e-books. The e-books copies. Yes. I feel like the old guy. What are, no? But you can order an e-book and get it uh, sent to your your tablet or, or what have you, or get the uh, the physical copy. But you can do that finally today. Yes, uh, the day has finally arrived. I want to say thank you to BJ, thank you to Entree, thank you to everybody that has supported the book that I pre-ordered the book at Benjub84.com. But yes, the day has arrived. You can go get it right now from uh, any ebooks uh, that's available. Whether that's i well, iBooks, uh, Kindle, Audible, BJ. I want to say, uh, man, there's too many even name with Google Books, Amazon. It, it's, it's available everywhere books are sold, as well as uh, you. If you want, if you don't want to wait, you can't get them on eBooks. But uh, yesterday is here. Uh, I appreciate all the support. I mean, it's a long time coming. BJ, me and you, I mean, went through a lot to get this book, uh, you know, going. But, yes, the uh, if you already ordered at BNJU84.com, the first shipment should be in any day now. You guys will be a part of the first, first shipment going out. But if you want to go to any, uh, with iBooks, eBooks, Kindle, Audible, anything to where you can get an eBook copy, it should be available. But, yes, the 21st is here. The book is out. And if the physical copies will be in your hand, uh, hopefully by next week, if you did, go to BNJU84.com. And it's also... Uh, sold at Amazon, Bar- Barnes and Nobles, Target, Books a Million, and basically everywhere books are sold. Yeah, I know your phone's blowing up with the "Hey, where's my book?" Yes, the 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 <laughs> physical books, the physical books are coming. Uh, going to be going to be shipped out in the next couple of days. But if you want that digital copy, you can get it right now. You can go to Amazon, Kindle, or like Ben said, eBooks.com or uh, uh, any number of. Uh, book retailers online, and you can immediately get access to it, get it sent to your phone, uh, get it sent to your tablet, to your computer, to your laptop, and have it right there uh, right now today within, you know, 30 seconds of visiting the website. Uh, uh, digitally, you can have the copy, and then next couple of days should be shipping out uh, the orders we've gotten online. BenTroop84.com still gets you a, a hard copy, an autograph copy from Ben Troop. But yeah, really excited about the digital release today and uh, all the information, the links uh, up on social media, Ben. I know on your Twitter, uh, my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. So get that digital copy. Hey, nothing wrong with having a digital copy and a physical copy. I mean, Ben, you mentioned last week the deal, buy one for a thousand, get one for a thousand. I think that's still going on, right? Is that is that true? Actually, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I got a couple of uh, complaints last week. So now this week, buy one for 2,000, uh, get one for 2,000. For those of you who got that Kevin Thomas cheese, no, just go out there, go to benchmade4.com, uh, purchase your copy, hard copy, but go to go to iBooks, eBooks, Audible, you know, uh, anywhere that has uh, e-books available, to go ahead and get your e-book copy if you don't want to wait for the hard copy. But, yes, Uncommon Unfinished, The Ben True Story is out in stores today. Uh, and uh, like I said, from True Vine Publishing to Tim to BJ to Entree to everybody that has something to do with this book, I want to say thank you. And I hope you guys enjoy it as, uh, uh, reading as much as, I, as uh, we enjoyed our writing it. Yeah, a lot of people have helped encourage us along the way and offered some guidance. Like you mentioned, Ben, Entree Drummer, uh, Tim Bond, have really been incredibly uh, insightful and, uh, and, and and thoughtful and helpful and uh, really excited, and that should be a fun couple of weeks here. So make sure you get your copy of, uh, of Ben Troop's uh, book, the digital copies you said you can get today. The physical copies you can have very, very shortly. I know people are excited about that uh, coming up as well. Next up, a B.J. Bennett Red audible copy of Ben Troop's book for everybody. No, that wasn't that wasn't in the contract. <laughs> <laughs> not going to not going to not going to put your voice to the audible copy of Ben's book. OK, 
I think people hear enough of me every day already. We got more to come. Final hour around the corner here, three and out. Good to have you back here. Final hour of three and out. Thanks for making us a part of your day. Hit us up on Twitter at Pigskin Radio. We are also streaming live, ESPNCoastal.com, also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Hope you'll uh, take some time to join us there uh, as well. You can catch the show each and every day. If you missed our conversation with Philip Fulmer, former Tennessee head coach, AD, Hall of Famer, won a national championship uh, there at uh, Tennessee. We'll have that for you coming up in just a little bit. We'll also look at Georgia heading into this week's game against Vanderbilt, which is probably more of an important tune-up for Arkansas coming up in two weeks. But we'll get to that in just a little bit. But Falcons and Jags going after, or really the Jags going after the uh, Falcons on Twitter for using a similar type post on social media. BJ, my question to you, should the Jags be dragging anybody on social media? Period. I mean, look, they're just trying they're just trying to have someone that they can be miserable with. I mean, right now you're talking about <laughs> look, right? You're talking about 0 and 2. You're looking around the league going, "All right, who Oh, the Falcons. Yeah, they're 0 and 2. Let's just let's just kind of squabble here, go back and forth and be miserable together." But no, I mean, I think I think there are some similarities like we talked about earlier in the show. You you have different teams, okay? Atlanta has an MVP possibly a Hall of Famer at quarterback. Jacksonville has a rookie, but you do have some similarities. You have first-year head coaches, although Arthur Smith has some experience clearly in the NFL. You have teams that are very young at certain spots, the offensive line in particular, and the offensive line for both Atlanta and Jacksonville, they've underwhelmed. They've underwhelmed. I mean, Jalen Mayfield, I kind of feel bad for him because everybody's just posting his highlights or his lowlights, I should say, on, on, on social media every Sunday. Uh, he, he struggled, but he's not the only one. Jacksonville has had just about everybody across the front struggle, and you can't function offensively when you can't block. That's true at every level of football. And, Ben, I think it's fair to say right now, when you talk about both the Jaguars and Falcons, you're talking about two of the least effective offensive lines in the league right now. BJ and Kevin, you know this. This is when this is when this this is what you call the petty, just being even pettier. When you ain't got nothing else to go off of, the Jaguars telling the Falcons you copy number one. If you the Falcons, this is the last you ain't even want you ain't even want the Jags to notice. Like, do they notice that we took what they did? Took what? We ain't took a dub from them. No. Do the Jags play the Falcons? Because that's gonna be the brawl for it all for real. But I, I just think that when you when you really when you really get to breaking out these two teams, Kevin and BJ, I mean, it, you gotta have something to go. You know, you gotta have something to feel good about the Jags. Uh, have somebody jocking they jocking they style a little bit. That just happened to be them boys from the ATL. I, I don't know. I, I just think that if you if you in the uh, Social media department, I mean, are you getting called to the head coach's office saying, what, what, what y'all doing? Well, listen, coach, man, we ran out of ideas, man. We just, you know, I mean, what? You know, it's just one of those, what did the Jags do? I mean, we ain't got, they got a, you know, they got a pool at their stadium, man. So we said maybe out the blank and put some pools in Mercedes. No, it happens. But, I mean, hey, sometimes, you know, you got to be petty a little bit to bring any, any, anything positive uh, to, your, to your organization right now. Because Kevin and BJ, as we know, there is nothing positive right now going. The only, listen, the only thing the Jags got going on that the Falcons don't is no state tax. That's it. 
<laughs> outside of that, it ain't much to talk about. But hey, man. Hey, Falcons, man, be more creative. Please don't be stealing from the Jags, man, because now you got that on your resume. You're already 0-2. Now you need to get help from a team that got a freaking pool at the stadium. Come on, man. We can do better than that. <laughs> now they're going after each other. But again, the, the Falcons got the Giants this week. Giants are 0-2. Uh, also, I mean, this is a must-get-it for both of those teams. Uh on the road, I mean, where, do you think the Falcons can – I mean, we're in week two of the we got to get better speech. I mean, are, are we going to have a third week in a row of we got to get better? Or, or if Daniel Jones beats you, is that – I mean, is that just like it here early in the in the season, the way the well, way this thing's going? I mean, Ben, you told us yesterday this is a must win, and it sounds nuts to have a must win in September, but uh, you were absolutely terrible against Philadelphia – your finish to the game against Tampa Bay was embarrassing in many respects. If you go to New York, I know it's a road game. I know the Giants have Saquon and some young defensive players that are really good. But if you go to New York and lose to the Giants and you're 0-3, that's a major, major problem. Because you did not fire Dan Quinn and bring in Arthur Smith to get off to bad starts again, to be a below 500 team, to be picking in the top 10 of the draft. You made a change because you decided that being okay was not good enough. And you fired a coach that not long ago, I know it's getting longer ago, but not long ago took you to a Super Bowl. And by making a coaching change, I think you affirm the notion that those are our expectations. We expect to be in the playoffs. We expect to have Matt Ryan playing meaningful football late in the year. And I know you, I know you got rid of Julio Jones, but by drafting an offensive playmaker in the top five, the highest drafted tight end ever in Kyle Pitts, and by committing to Matt Ryan by not drafting a young quarterback, I think you further made it clear that you expect to win now. That was a message to Arthur Smith that, hey, we are not rebuilding. We are not on a three- to four-year plan. We're on a start-winning-games-now plan, and that hasn't happened. So I agree with you, Ben. If this team loses to the New York Giants on Sunday, I know it's just three games. Atlanta's in a bad spot. If Atlanta if Atlanta loses to, to the Giants, I mean, Arthur Smith is going to understand that this head coaching thing ain't what he set out to be. I do understand that uh, Matty Ice has been owed some level of loyalty, but at a certain point, you got to turn the page on every single player in the National Football League, even if it is Matty Ice. I mean, Daniel Jones, wow. I mean, when you look at what the Giants are doing or not doing right now, so and I, and I know and I know it's easy to say that, right? Oh, the Falcons they should be that be the be the Giants. Well, the Falcons, I mean, the Giants somewhere up there, you know, somewhere up there in New York, they saying if the Giants lose to the Falcons, they stink. So don't think that the conversation ain't being saying up there either. But Matty Ice is the veteran quarterback. They got to find a way to get a win. They got to find a way to get some momentum because the thing about it is, it has been nothing. Nothing to write home about these first two games and the second game. Just happened to be worse than the first. And Philadelphia didn't look like world beaters in their second game, and they made they made Atlanta look pedestrian. So, yes, got to get a win in the worst way just to build some confidence because Arthur Smith, right now, whatever you preach to the team, it is not hitting because they ain't out there executing right now. Jags, on the other hand, they host Arizona coming up on Sunday. And is this a potential winnable game for, for Jacksonville? <laughs> I mean, it's hard to have a lot of trust and that you're going to beat a beat a good team right now. I, look, Arizona's been – I mean, Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray's incredible. I mean, he's one of the hottest quarterbacks in the league. And I think right now 
while all the focus is on the offensive line and Trevor Lawrence and why aren't you giving James Robinson the football, you're talking about a very young defense. And I'll go back to a couple of moves that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, right? And I guess it's because the storylines all offseason for Jacksonville were or all preseason were, okay, is Tebow going to make the team? Nope. Okay, how's Trevor looking? Oh, here's the injury to, unfortunately, to Travis Etienne. Okay, uh, you know, what are we going to see offensively out of this group that you kind of forgot that this team traded Sidney Jones and Joe Schobert. And Joe Schobert was a Pro Bowl linebacker, was one of the leading tacklers in the National Football League, one of the few veterans you had on your whole roster. He now plays for Pittsburgh. Sidney Jones was a proven corner who had had success in this league for a couple of years. He now plays for Seattle. So an already young defense got even younger. And you look around the group, I mean, Calevon Chasen, Josh Allen, uh, you're thinking about what you have in the secondary, Andre Sisco, C.J. Henderson, Shaq Quarterman, uh, Tavon Bryan. These guys, Devon Hamilton, they're in their first couple of years. I mean, outside of, outside of Griffin and maybe outside of uh, Robertson Harris and a few players here and there, you're Rayshon Jenkins, you're really inexperienced. I mean, really inexperienced. So if you're asking me, is Jacksonville's defense going to slow down Kyler Murray? That's a hard thing for me to foresee. Now, do I think the offense will bounce back? Yes. I think Urban Meyer is slowly realizing, get the football to James Robinson, run the football with James Robinson, and let Trevor throw off of play action and out of the shotgun in more favorable down and distance situations. So I, I think Jacksonville's offense will take steps forward. But Ben, this is a major challenge for that D. And you're going you're gonna to learn a lot about this defense uh, this week, BJ, and a guy in Kyler Murrow that definitely make plays with his arms and his legs. There's definitely uh, the play is never over with a guy that can make plays outside of the pocket that could definitely, uh, you know, I mean, right now as, uh, you know, if the, it, I know it's early, but after two weeks, he's definitely top five in the MVP uh, voting when you look at what he brings to this offense. And I know it's all about D-Hop. I know it's all about Christian Kirk. But, oh, A.J. Green, I mean, he's out there, you know, with the Arizona Cardinals. And be on the lookout for Chandler Jones, who had not one, not two, not three, not four, but five sacks week one against the Titans and Taylor Lewan, uh, you know, uh, you know, sacking on Ryan Tannehill. So, yeah, going to be a tall <laughs> – Gonna be a t- Kyler Murray is gonna be a tall task, uh, you know, for them Jacksonville Jaguars. What, what he makes up in stature, he definitely makes up in game. And the young man, he got a nice game. Yeah, we'll see. Who do you have first, Jags or Falcons? Getting a win first in twenty twenty one. I mean, surely it's got to be Atlanta on Sunday, right? I mean, I mean, surely it's got to be the Falcons against the Giants. I mean, I would imagine Atlanta more <laughs> so than Jacksonville. Be. I mean, r- right? I mean, Atlanta more so than Jacksonville has the sense of urgency. Because if you're Jacksonville, if we're being honest, and I know you had season ticket holders saying, we're going to contend for a playoff spot this year. Well, let's just calm down a little bit there. But I think Atlanta truly with conviction felt like and still, still feels like they are a playoff-type team. They are a team that can be in the postseason mix. I don't know that that's the realistic standard in Jacksonville. When you talk about a coach that's never been in the league, a quarterback that up until a couple of weeks ago had never lost a regular season game, a rookie, your first-round picks out for the year. As mentioned, you traded away a couple of your defensive standouts for draft picks. I think Atlanta feels like they have to win. I think Jacksonville would like to win. And I think in part because of that, Atlanta gets the win this weekend. 
PJ, all that sounds fine and dandy. I will put my money on Atlanta for the simple fact that if I got to, I mean, if I got to pick a team that might be worse than Atlanta, and I say might, it got. It, I hope it is the uh, the New York Football Giants because the Jag gonna get their first win, and this is against the Arizona Cardinals. Yeah, I ain't a betting man. You know, but I'll take that bet. I'm just saying. I mean, I just don't see it happen this week for the Jags. But then again, you know, we are talking about the Falcons and the lesser evil, you know, uh, you know, uh, of the New York football Giants. But hopefully it is Arthur Smith because he needs one way worse than Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer, you know, I mean, he, he, he on the team that won one game with Atlanta team that got, you know, a reigning, uh, you know, regular season MVP. So hopefully it is them A-Town down Falcons. We've got more to come here on 3 and Out on this Tuesday. If you missed it earlier, our conversation with Philip Fulmer, Vols legend, head coach, player at Tennessee, won a national championship, college football Hall of Famer, had a stint as AD as well. Great to be back here with you 3 and Out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Georgia, a big win over South Carolina. They got Vanderbilt uh, this weekend. And, again, Vanderbilt, Clark Lee, doing what they can do. Uh, but I think this is more of a tune-up now for what looks like a – much better game than maybe we thought of back in early August against Arkansas in two weeks, BJ and Ben. But Georgia seems to be getting a little bit healthier. Tyke Smith and Darnell Washington expected to finally play against Vanderbilt. Obviously, this is a game you could probably pick your score uh, there on, on Saturday. But what are you trying to get better on if you're Georgia? In a game you know you have like this, where Vanderbilt doesn't meet the talent threshold, they really – haven't played all that great for much of the season. What are you trying to get better at before you get into Arkansas and then start looking ahead to the Florida's coming up at the end of the, the month of October? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, you're looking at Arkansas and you're trying to fine-tune some things before that game. But good news on the guys getting healthy, Tyke Smith and, and Darnell Washington. But I think you're probably trying to establish the run a little more and continue to focus on uh, setting the tone right there at the line of scrimmage. I think that'll be the goal. And, Kevin, look, I agree. This is going to be a game that the, 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 the final score is probably going to be whatever you want it to be. If that's 41 to three, if that's, you know, more than that, it's going to be what you want it to be. But I think this is an opportunity to continue to build your depth as well. I do think you'll see Stetson Bennett, probably Carson Beck as well in this game. We know that Georgia has four or five plus running backs who could play it. Most programs, I think you'll see those guys get touches. Um, ben, that that's the priority for me. And I know there have been some relative concerns about Georgia's rushing game, and we say that looking in the rearview mirror and seeing Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle and DeAndre Swift and, you know, these these backs that are still making big plays uh, every single season uh, in the National Football League every week What DeAndre Swift jumping over somebody last night. But I think you're going to run the ball, and you're going to run the ball well. For all the concern about Georgia's rushing attack, and keep in mind they open up with Clemson, who still has not given up an offensive touchdown, Georgia has improved its total rushing yardage, its yard per carry average, and the number of touchdowns scored on the ground in each game. And I think that will continue now into game four against Vanderbilt. I want to. I mean, what I want to see from Georgia is them, uh, them continue to play up to the standard. I think when you're a team like Georgia, number one, the number two team in the country, you don't want to play down the lesser competition. You want to make it look like it's Florida. I mean, Georgia versus Vanderbilt. You want to. You want to let Vanderbilt know that while you made some strides, it's gonna be. It's gonna. You're gonna be outmatched uh, from the opening kickoff. Georgia has no. And I and I know you know everybody's gonna be excited about bringing back Tyke Smith and Darnell Washington. How do, How does Darnell Washington play into the fold of a, of a of an offense that seemed to be more like spread the ball around? to a lot of different guys, not having really one focal point. I mean, he's going to add, obviously, more uh, firepower because 
I just think for this Georgia team, it's every single week, man, just be one to know and pass the eye test. You know, for some, you know, it's like when, when Alabama played Florida and Alabama got the win, people scrutinized Alabama because it wasn't a usual blowout. Well, Georgia, Georgia get, finally gave up a touchdown in week three. Nolan Smith, I mean, had had a game of his career thus far in his Georgia, you know, you know of his career, uh, you know, uh, against uh, South Carolina, and Georgia seemingly uh, just seemed to be uh, rolling, you know, rolling right along, not doing it with the run game, doing it more through the air and complimentary through the uh, with the run game. And Kirby Smart seemed to have this team just not looking for, not not looking down the road, and they respect everybody they play. That's what make a really really good team. I'm looking for them to go out there and play hard nosed uh, Georgia football, and prove to the world why they are, you know, uh, one of the best teams in the country, definitely the number two team in the country, right behind Alabama. And I know I know that uh, Arkansas is coming. I know that. Auburn's coming. I know that, you know, uh, Florida's coming, uh, you know, down the road, but they're not looking down the road. Their most important game is the current game, and they're going to get, get Vanderbilt all they can handle, which, which bowls well for them and definitely does not bowl well for a Vanderbilt team that's always scratching and clawing to, you know, to maintain some level of relevance in, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, in the SEC. Uh, Kevin and BJ and always you know, trying to get to that six win. And we will get a chance, so uh, in South Georgia ties to see uh, Rocco Griffin uh, there at Vanderbilt. Uh, leading uh, or the uh, leading rusher, Raymond Davis, out for the year with a torn ligament in his foot. Uh, Rocco Griffin, 100 yards over, over 100 yards against Stanford. So you'll probably get a chance to see Southeast Georgia native Rocco Griffin there against uh, against Georgia. So be on the lookout for that as well. But these are the type of games I think BJ were in years past. And you see this? It's not Georgia. You see it with a lot of programs where you play a team like a Vanderbilt, and look, you're the number two team in the country. You kind of feel like you can go out there and just go through the motions and get a dub, and sometimes it's a little closer. I don't think it's going to be the case the way Georgia's played this year. I mean, we see it with Clemson when they played Syracuse a few years ago. It's like, oh, we'll just walk out there and it'll be fine. I think this seems like a, a different Georgia team, and, I, I, again, I'm interested to see what they do against uh, Vanderbilt early if they come out and really first, second quarter just go ahead and say, look, you're, you just it's over. You're not even going to get a glimmer of a hope of being close in this thing. Yeah, this game's not going to be close, and Vanderbilt is clearly rebuilding now. Now, I will, and even from the Derek Mason era, I know they haven't been great in recent years, but they're starting over. Now, I will say this, got a good win over Colorado State a couple of weeks ago. You mentioned Rocco Griffin, former star here uh, locally in high school, had 100 yards against Stanford. That's a very impressive performance. But Georgia's defense right now, nobody's moving the football against the dogs. They are overwhelming people at the point of attack, and Vanderbilt's not going to be able to throw the ball. This is a game that's all about depth. And I do think maybe you see a little bit more of Stetson Bennett and and Carson Beck. You know, if you are, are JT Daniels, and I'm just, you know, I, this is probably the reality. If it's 35 to nothing at halftime, maybe there's not much of a need to get many more reps out of JT Daniels and a chance to play a couple quarterbacks, chance to play multiple running backs, a chance to rotate some young offensive linemen in. I know Georgia has recruited great along the offensive line, and you have some first- and second-year players who could benefit benefit from reps against SEC competition. I think you'll see that. Maybe you see uh, one or two of the guys who haven't played yet get in. But I think this is a good chance to get in rhythm, develop some momentum. If there are some things you need to work on, do it and then you'll be in a better place when Arkansas comes to town. 
Yeah, you do hope that everybody gets some quality reps this week. I mean, you hope that Carson Beck you know, gets a chance to get in, him and Stetson Bennett, because JT Daniels has more than done his job. I mean, you hope this running game uh, can get more, uh, you know, get more balance. But I think the, I, I don't think the running game is as bad as people think. We they're sharing they're sharing the wealth. How do you keep four and five guys happy by making sure they all get touches? And obviously, it's how you give those guys touches. Some guys like Cook, you know, he you know those guys may get more touches in the passing game, but. I just think if you Georgia, you don't want to have. It's not going to be this. You know, we're not. We're going to play down to Vanderbilt. Look, they, they next on the schedule. They got to get this. They got to get this work like everybody uh, thus far this season. And uh, if Vanderbilt, you try your best to go out there and see can you win some individual matchups? Can you go out there and execute? Can you go out there and find a way to uh, you know to, to get your offense going? You might not get in the end zone that much, but can you be efficient running the football? Rocco, we're gonna learn a lot about him because watching Georgia on film ain't the same as playing them in person. I can guarantee you that. But hey, man, that's why you strap it up. I mean, I, I don't. I think Georgia's gonna look past Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt gonna get everything they can handle from Georgia, and it should be BJ. It should be a better game than we give it credit for. The scoreboard might not indicate it, but if you go breaking down some of those individual matchups, you might be very, very impressed with what you see coming from a Vanderbilt team that's used to being the underdog in most games they're gonna play in. Yeah, and again, I, I I think look, Georgia getting healthy at the right time. Defensively, they have looked the part, right? I know you talk about hey, what are their weaknesses? I mean. Defensively, I think if you're a coach breaking down this film, what it's kind of gone viral. The uh, the Shane Beamer uh, presser. Did you see? Did you guys see that? Where that somebody said, "What is it about Georgia's defense?" He's like, it's "Like, are you serious? Like, they have? Like, I think he said they have like a hundred five stars on defense, and they're all big, fast, nasty, can run." It's like, why do you think we struggled? <laughs> I mean, and I, so I think that's kind of uh, been the common theme here in the first uh, several weeks of the season. Is but I mean, Kev, Kev, I, Kev, Ben, if you're if you're Vanderbilt or even if you're Arkansas, what's the game plan? I mean, how do you move the football against a team where probably every single starter is going to be drafted? Probably most of the backups will be drafted. There's NFL size and speed at every position. You have an anchor up front in Jordan Davis. Dan Lanning is putting guys in a great position. I mean, Ben, be, be the offensive coordinator here. How do you move the football against Georgia? Try to do some misdirection stuff. Try to do some. Uh, try to do the, try to get in the screen game to kind of slow kind of slow down uh, that pass rush. And you know, and you got listen. You got to take what they give you sometimes. I mean, BJ, you talking about the 2021 dogs defense like this ain't been the 2020, the 2019, 2018, 2017 dogs defense. Those guys are putting guys out every single year. You know, all over that defense. But if you Vanderbilt, if you Arkansas, if you whomever, look, you got to go with what you got to do. You got to. Uh, 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 live with what got you there. Take your bumps and bruises. Take what the defense gives you. And whenever you find it, whenever you get a chance to make a play, you got to hit those 50-50 balls. You got to be able to break some runs. You got to be able to break some tackles. Because the thing about the Georgia defense is not, once again, just like Alabama, it's not that you can't move the ball on them. Can you move the ball on them consistently? And whenever you do get into that green zone or that red zone, can you find a way to lead with points? Three points ain't seven points, but it's better than no points. And you live with the result. Because I think the thing about Georgia is they force you to, they force you to beat them straight up. They're not going to let you do all that little cute stuff you do with other teams. Try to do some misdirection stuff. Try to do some perimeter stuff. Try to do some screen game stuff and try to win those 50-50 uh, balls and, and try to win some individual matches. But I think what you're saying, obviously, is Dan Lanning is com- and, and Nick Saban does the same thing. Is comfortable with his defense to say, look, I'll give you some short stuff, uh, but you putting together a 10 or 12 plays drive against me is not going to happen. Right? I mean, I'll give you 7, 8 plays. I'll give you 9 plays. But you're not going to go down the field uh, in, in 10, 11, 12, 13 play drives and get points consistently against me. And what a, a confidence weapon that is, Ben. When, uh, if you're an offense, like, yeah, take what they give me. Okay, well, they're giving me the three-yard underneath stuff. 
Well, how many plays are we going to have to run three, four yards at a clip to get in scoring position? And how many of those can we run successfully to get us down there? I, I, I think when you have these elite defensive coordinators, are like, yeah, take the underneath stuff. It's fine. You can get your two, three yards. You're not going to run 10 of those, 15 of those in a row to get points on the board, not against us. And, and, and that's the gamble they take. And, and, man, you really see when they have that luxury, pin their ears back, and they really force you to try to do some things, and then it's over. Uh, when you get off schedule just once, uh, you're done. And, and again, I, I agree with BJ. If I'm a, a Vanderbilt or Arkansas, I'm like, what's your game plan? Our game plan is to run the ball. <laughs> Good luck. I know that's what you do well, but that, that may not work uh, when it comes time to play Georgia. It's about being persistent and it's about being disciplined. I think some. I think sometimes when we look at elite elite defenses, we look at them as if they don't have any weakness. Every single defense has a weakness. Every single defense has a hole in it. It's your job to be patient. It's your job to find them. And it's your job to take full advantage of them. That's what Georgia does. Georgia says, "Listen, while it looked like you know it's just a jailbreak on every single play with as far like us being in the backfield, no. If that guard can't, can't, if that guard doesn't have a good drop step, we're gonna be attacking him both inside and out. If that center ain't good and making the right calls, we're gonna switch up. You know, uh, I'll." This package right before the snap. It's, they're taking advantage of your biggest weakness. The thing about Georgia, they have a weakness. You just got to find a way to explore it. And once again, you got to win those. You got to win some of those battles. Jordan Davis don't make every single play on the defense. He just forced you to be disruptive because that center, he's out of the play every single play. It's gonna take a team with Mac. It's gonna take a team with a great with a great game plan and being disciplined in their approach. The best player to look at is Tom Brady. Tom Brady would dink and dunk you all the way down the field. I Man, he keeps throwing the check down, keeps throwing the check down, and you get so frustrated. Oh, you think you're gonna throw the check down? Oh, that go Gronk, that go Godwin, that go Evans, and that's the way you gotta kind of look at a Georgia team. Take what they give you. Listen, listen. Sometimes throwing the ball away is the best play you got. Don't try to play hero ball because if you've seen Jordan Davis run down on third and ten, run down that that quarterback. Line flash before his eyes he was like what <laughs> in the world is this but I just think that the best defenses bring out the best or the worst in an offense and I just think that this weekend we're gonna learn a lot about Mr. Rocco hey listen they do it to everybody young man go out there and have yourself a day we'll find out how deep that Georgia defense can be possibly a lot of guys probably gonna get out there and play it's three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network good to have you here three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network Kevin Thomas B.J. Bennett, Ben Troop, glad you are with us. Appreciate Philip Fulmer joining us here on the show. College Football Hall of Famer, a former fall coach, national championship winning head coach there at Tennessee. Also, Andy Demetra, voice of the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, joined us back in hour number one. If you missed any of that, uh, guys, you can go to ESPNCoastal.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, at ESPN Coastal. Great place to go if you missed any uh, bit of the show. We archive it there daily at ESPN Coastal on YouTube, and you can catch that, our high school games of the week, and more there on our ESPN Coastal YouTube page. We'll see you tomorrow, Wednesday afternoon, here on 3 and Out.